You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. I'm privileged to stand on this stage. And uh, honestly, I, I feel this is the only stage that I probably should be preaching on. Um, I don't know if you, if you know what I mean, but if you look at the stage, you can see uh, it's a little imperfect. There are nails, there's wood filler, it's made of plywood. But I think, uh, I think every time I look at it, when I'm, when I'm sitting where you guys are, I see that uh, um, there's nothing perfect here except for one, the word of God, right? And the man that's preaching as well is imperfect. So I feel like this is where I belong because definitely I am imperfect. Um, and being used by a perfect God. So, uh, before we uh, we start, I wanted to just remind us of what we've been uh, what we've been going through, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, a picture of a new kingdom, a picture of uh, a change, a shift uh, of something new that is happening. And Christ is preaching this powerful sermon to those that are listening. Um, this Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful sermon seems to progressively reveal to us the perfect heart of God and the perverted nature of our own. It has been both humbling and heartbreaking to go through this. And I'm sure everyone can agree that it's been here the last few weeks. Christ has been showing us that the law has been completely separated from the heart of God. Rather than coming uh, to the understanding that we must completely rely on God and be in submission to him, we see here that Christ is reminding them of the law because they thought they could still do it themselves. And many times we live that same way, thinking that we can fulfill uh, the, the standards of God in our own power. We as men lower the bar and we bring it to a level where we feel like we can fulfill it. And sure, we fulfill it in our own measure, uh, but it's not his law. This man-made standard that was being kept by the most righteous of their time was merely a form and not the genuine article. They had left Egypt thousands of years ago, but they continued to practice some of the same spiritual practices. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that their religious practice was very similar to a specific Egyptian religious practice, and that was mummification. Mummification was a religious practice by the Egyptians, and they did this to make sure that eternal life could be attained. And similarly, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing the same. They just weren't doing it with dead bodies. They were doing it with the law of God. Let, Let me explain. Egyptians went to great lengths to preserve the aesthetics of the dead that were to be mummified, believing that the afterlife can be reached if they preserved this human body in a state that is similar to when the person was alive. But the very process only made the person further from life rather than closer to it. If you were a pharaoh or one rich enough to be able to take part in the mummification process after you died, They would, for all intents and purposes, make you into very dry jerky. Your brain would be removed from a hole near your nose. They would remove your internal organs, dry you out uh, for 70 days in salt. So you'd also be salty. Uh, (laughs) 
in some of the more common or in the way that we understand salty today. If, uh, then they would place you in an ornate sarcophagus to make sure that no wildlife can get to you. If you weren't dead enough before you started, there, then you were definitely not coming back to life after this process. So similarly, the religious leaders were preserving the superficial aspects of the law while desiccating the inward most precious parts of it, thinking they were grabbing hold of eternal life. Their adherence to the superficial law was simply a beautification of their tombs or sarcophagus which only serves to hide the truth and the stench of it all, which is that they are rotten, decaying men on the inside. They are still dead, just as all of us once were, who are now in Christ, who have been made alive. That is why Christ says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this just before we get into these portions of scripture. He says, unless it surpasses their righteousness, then you let me, let me see here. Uh, unless it surpasses their righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So a good question here is to ask, what kind of righteousness is this that keeps you from entering heaven? We know that God is righteous, and if we are righteous, we will enter heaven, right? Well, it's an unrighteous righteousness. I don't know if that makes any sense. But uh, I don't know if you remember us reading like a salt that has lost its saltiness, right? It is good for nothing. This righteousness is good to be thrown out on the road and trampled underfoot by men. That is what Christ is showing us here. He is pointing us towards a different, a different even circumcision, a different circumcision. The law required circumcision, but he is pointing us to a different one, one of the heart, not of the flesh. Christ is showing that something new has come. His kingdom and those that will be part of it will become new as well. And as, a, as Pastor Lucas reminded us um, in his first sermon, the disciples of Christ will be unable to hide who they are because they become distinguishably different than the world around them. So in this passage today, we see the continuation of Christ revealing the perfect heart of God in the law. The passage today connects deeply actually to the last two verses that Pastor Ovi meant, that read last week. Um, the, verses on, the verses on divorce. What do I mean? Uh, well, that theme that he mentioned, if any of you remember, it was covenant, not casual. This is what is continued in these next few verses. Or another way to say it, sacred, not common, or proper, not profane. Please keep these in mind because you'll be hearing some of these words as we go through the, through the sermon. So keep them in mind as we read through the text. So if we can begin, we'll, we'll jump into the text now in Matthew 5, verse 33, and we'll be reading to verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. 
anything beyond this is of evil. So he starts again. He's actually said this before. Um, He said, again, you have heard the ancients were told. Christ is reminding them that this is not something new. You guys know this. All the rabbis teach this. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now that's actually a mixture of two different uh, commands. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, where it says, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And Numbers 30, one through two, or verses one through two, um, but specifically verse two, then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel saying, this is the word of which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So you need to uh, fulfill the vows that you make to the Lord. So vows or oaths are probably the thing we need to define here. We need to sort of clarify what we're talking about here. When you hear vow, when you hear oath, they're pretty much the same thing. And even covenant, when you hear the word covenant, you're still pretty much talking about the same thing. Every covenant requires an oath and a vow. Uh, vows and oaths are pretty much promises, uh, but they can, these words can be used interchangeably. So if you hear me using one or the other, just, just remember, they're all pretty much talking about the same thing. But oaths, what are oaths? They are a guarantee of veracity, an affirmation of truthfulness. They are a security, an insurance policy. They make sure the words that come out of you are not simply words, but that they bear weight, that the promises you make cannot be broken unjustly. And if we do break them, then we as the unjust shall receive due justice from the Lord. That is what an oath is. Now, there are two types of oaths that we generally run into, and it's pretty much the same everywhere. Um, An oath that affirms or validates the veracity of a statement, either relating to the past or to the present. That's number one. And then you have number two, which is an oath as a guarantee for a promise for the future. But uh, number one, let's stick to number one for a moment. We actually have an example of this in scripture. We have examples of so many oaths in the scriptures. Um, And not only from men to men, but from God to men, from men to God. Uh, They are an important thing. uh, And they treat them in an important manner. But here in Exodus 22, verse 10, God gives an example of what an oath is and when this type of oath to validate a statement is useful. And I think we've all ran to the situation where our neighbor gives us his donkey and it dies or is hurt or driven away. No, but in any, you know what I mean, right? The, the word says, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for himself or to keep for him, it, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, then they have to make an oath. Before who? Before the Lord. And one thing we need to recognize is the wording in every oath. It is that it is to the Lord. Just remember that. That is necessary. So they need to make an oath before the Lord that he has not laid his hands on his neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it and he shall not make restitution. So this oath just guarantees, hey, I didn't kill your donkey. Something else happened. I wasn't looking and something happened. Uh, So I can't be held, right? I can't be held under the law for this. So it's useful because the whole point is this man, if he did steal his donkey and sell it to someone else, well, uh, 
there's no danger in him lying if there is no oath. But once you bring God into the picture, that man is very fearful of lying because he understands the weight of justice will be pressed upon him if he does lie, right? So these are the most common forms of oaths that we take. We hear them often. Um, I'll try to not say it often if in case there are, okay, there, I don't see the kids here, but I, I don't want this to be sort of soaked into their head because it's something that is soaked into our heads. This, this statement of, I swear to God. It is something that we hear all the time. I swear, I swear to God, all the time. It is sometimes used before a sentence, in the middle of a sentence, after a sentence. Um, sometimes before, middle, and after. Everywhere. Um, and sometimes it's even said alone by itself. So you hear someone say, I swear, and you know, whatever's coming after that is not good. So they're not even saying it. You just know, believe them, right? Um, it's become very common in our culture. But why are these forms of oaths so common? Well, to put it simply, um, I'm sorry to say we are liars. That is the truth. Because we are liars. Statistically speaking, the average person lies once or twice a day. This was, this was something, this was a little study that was done about uh, in 2019. But um, let me, let me uh, give you a little bit more. Uh, in two, 2022, they made another and said, now we've jumped up four times a day. So we actually, on average, about four times a day, we lie. And these are not these big, super crazy lies. These are little lies. They just, for no reason, there's no punishment if we lie. We just, we're liars, right? It's part of our nature for some reason. Not only are we liars, but we are accustomed to hearing lies as well. And unfortunately, that is why even children jump into the practice of taking oaths. What do I mean by that? Well, little girls have instituted oaths, very serious ones, such as the pinky promise. And uh, boys, the spit shake, right? Uh, not sure why we as boys couldn't just use the girls one, but uh, yeah, they were definitely, definitely better oath on their side. But it is sad to see that even in the most pure among us, they've realized that, hey, we need oaths to trust one another. Because if I'm a liar, I know you're probably one too, right? That's the truth. So number two, oath as a guarantee for a promise for the future. This, uh, this is actually, I don't, I, I don't think I, I, I encounter this too often, but it definitely, definitely part of life. It is a necessary part of life. And we see actually uh, an example of Rahab using this type of oath to guarantee her family and her own protection. This is a serious oath. This is an oath that binds you to fulfilling something in the future. It's, it's a scary thing to take. And when we read this passage of Rahab um, saying, hey, I know who your God is. I know that he is great. I know that he has destroyed every enemy in your way. And I know that you guys are coming here. So please, I've saved, I've done this for you, and I won't tell anyone, but you need to swear an oath to me that you will not let anything happen to myself or to my family. And these men, these men took this oath. They took this oath and they said, their own lives are at stake if one of their lives was lost. What a scary oath to take. 
And this oath uh, is shown that it is serious because they continue to add contingencies. They make sure that, that Rahab is aware that, hey, we will do our part, but hey, there are these, there are these corrals that need to be placed on this oath. This is not just, hey, empty, and if, if somehow, somehow, someone somehow dies, I'm responsible. They say, hey, if one of you guys exits this house when we come, you better know the death is on their head. They need to stay inside. Or we're, and if they exit, we're not responsible. Hey, you also have to put a little uh, scarlet thread outside your window so that we know where you're at and we know that we've made this covenant or this oath, this vow with you um, so we don't mistakenly kill you guys as well. Um, that's, how, that's how serious these oaths are. You, you, you can't take them carelessly. Um, they were very careful to make sure that it was made clear, the stipulations in the oath. Now these oaths, like I said, I don't, they're not as common as the everyday I swear to God, but they are something that is fairly, you know, normal. We see it in our society. We even see it in our, uh, we even see it in things like, uh, I, I guess a mortgage would be considered a type of oath, a type of promise that you will pay in the future, right? If we can, we should probably stay away from that if, if possible. But in today's day, it's almost impossible to get a house without a mortgage. So that is something that we do. Um, but they're so common, actually, oaths in general are so common that we see them used as a part of the legal system here in America. And not only in America, but also in Great Britain, almost, I mean, around the world. This has become a very common thing, and I'm sure all of you have heard of being sworn in or being put under oath. And some of you have been sworn in and been put under oath to witness or to testify, right? Uh, scary thing, and I don't think many of us think about what's going on, but there's something intimate, something, um, something serious that happens in that courtroom. And what they are doing is very intentional. Uh, have any of you heard the, say, the saying, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, but the truth, so help you God? Yes, we've all heard that, right? Well, whoever made that oath was not a nice guy because this corrals you. I mean, it corrals you. When you say this oath, you are saying, I will be honest to my own detriment. Saying that I will say the truth even when it implicates myself. I won't deviate or go on tangents and talk about my theories, trying to evade, you know, the light of truth on me. No, I will only say the truth. Scary, scary oath to take. This oath is clearly made to make us remember, because right at the end it says, so help you God. Actually in Great Britain, they still use by almighty God. So even clearer, right? There's no confusion. So help me God. I don't know. Okay, there's by Almighty God. You know for sure what that means. It is before the Lord. So they are introducing God in the equation. It makes it heavy. But no, that's not enough. This oath is to be sworn with an oath book. It is to be sworn with the Bible, placing your hand on the Bible, the standard of truth, the thing that tells us what is good, what is right, what is wrong. It is what we put our hand on. There's an intimacy there. You now have your hand upon the very thing that regulates what is right and wrong. And you will either tell the truth or lie. And actually, um, what is interesting in Great Britain, before they had this systemized uh, form of government that you, know, you could go to a court, they would do these type of 
of, of oaths in front of the altar. And not only in front of the altar, and they didn't have, uh, not every church had a full codex of the Bible, but some would have a gospel. They would use the gospel and you'd put your hand on the gospel. And not, and not only that, but eventually they said, that's not enough. We need to make this oath so binding that they, uh, the, the process now is, or at one point was put your hand on the Bible, swear this oath, and then kiss it. I don't know if that brings any, any things to mind, but I can tell you what it brings to my mind brings Judas to my mind. You realize that what you are kissing is ultimate truth. And is your kiss one of deception or is it one of love and one of intimacy? So you can see that these oaths are powerful. Man, they bind our hearts. They bind our, our, our minds. We cannot break. We don't want to break them. Actually, for a long time, perjury was not even punished. Because the world understood at one point that the breaking of that vow was the most serious thing that can be done. What else can we do to this man? He already perjured himself. He's done the worst thing to himself. He's, he's broken this vow, this oath. Eventually they had to start punishing it because we as people were liars. So that's what happens, right? <coughs> so we know that these vows are extremely powerful and that they are used when we cannot be sure of someone's moral character. We can apply them and feel that, hey, the weight of the justice of God is now upon this person. So as we have talked about, we are liars and a question may arise as, uh, that is why we need oaths, but a question may arise as to why God commands us to swear oaths, right? We are commanded to swear oaths in the law not because God wants us to swear oaths. Actually, uh, it, it states in the, in the word that he doesn't want us to swear oaths, but that in certain situations, he is not showing his perfect will, but he is mitigating sin, right? Similar to uh, what Ovi was talking about last time, which was divorce. Many times God allows things to mitigate more sin from happening. He, he gives laws to stop us from being worse than we already are. Thank God for that. So God is not prescribing, but rather he is allowing for our own sake, these oaths. But then Jesus in verse 34 says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for is the throne of God, or by earth, for is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for is the city of the great king. Okay, whoa. He's, uh, he's telling us make no oath at all. But what Christ is doing here is not reinterpreting. I think we need to clarify that. Christ is not reinterpreting scripture and the law. He is reaffirming scripture and the law. If we read in Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Beautiful. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And the same thing is pretty much reiterated in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 5. 
Now, this idea, even to this day, actually, this idea of not taking vows is actually central. Um, it's not something, it's central to, to rabbinic teaching, central to Jewish culture. It is not something that would have been new. Hey, don't take vows. Actually, they were teaching that. They were teaching their, uh, their students, don't take vows. You are in, in, in a, very likely, of a very high likelihood going to break that vow to God. And therefore, you will be guilty of sin, of perjury. So they, this was common. They're like, yeah, right on. Right on, Jesus. Don't, don't take vows. The, the issue here is not, you know, not, not, as, not, as not taking vows the right way. It's what they were doing to skirt the issue. So they were, they were actually figuring out a way to not involve God within their, their oaths. They were figuring out how they can still live their lives and not involve God in, the, in these situations. He directly attack, attacked the way they shimmied around this issue, right? They make vows by what? What does Christ say? Do not make vows by, do not make it by heaven, by, or, or do not make an oath by heaven, by the earth, or by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Man, they were, they were creative, they figured out a way that they were not bound and yet they could still make binding oaths. Interesting. Once again, we're, we're, we're taken back to the same issue. Unsalty salt. Unrighteous righteousness. Right? A beautiful sarcophagus. It's nothing inside. It is dead. But Christ exposes, right, again, their righteousness is good for nothing because an oath that is made always involves God. There is no way around it. You cannot make a promise or a vow and not expect God to be the ultimate judge for that situation. God is the ultimate judge. So you have to think that way. And that's why Christ is saying, hey, doesn't matter if it's by heaven, it is God's. Doesn't matter if it's by the earth, it's its footstool. Doesn't matter if you're, if you're, if you're doing it by, what was that last one? By Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Just, don't make them at all. The funny thing is these same men that are hearing this sermon being preached, possibly some rabbis, some, some Pharisees, and many, very many of the disciples of Christ would have heard that uh, it, was a direct, it was directed towards them. It was a direct attack. And these are the same men that were so unrighteously righteous they would, they would not dare to pronounce the name of God for it was too sacred. Even saying it would only serve to diminish its sacredness. And at the same time, they were profaning his name by twisting the law so they can break it with a free conscience. And swearing by everything else other than directly by him, they thought they were keeping their part of the covenant. Now realizing that by making the act of taking oaths more common, remember the common part that we've spoke about, not sacred. By making it more common and casual, they were breaking the third commandment as well. Because if all oaths are made to God and oaths become common, then the use of the name of God has become common. And now they are using the name of God in vain, continuously. And let me tell you, uh, if, if any of you remember the third commandment, what it is followed by, 
Let me read it for you here. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. That's scary. Because we take the Lord's name in vain. And we see that the heart of God is that this is a serious matter, not something light, common, casual, profane. And they use the word profane, or you hear the profaning my name, and it correlates actually perfectly with profanity, right? That's where we get the word profanity. Also vulgarity, it is vulgar. And actually an antonym to vulgar is regenerate. So Christ is calling us to a regenerate life, not to one that is vulgar and profane. They were attempting to, they were breaking the law in their attempt to not break it. They figured out a way to swear and still appear righteous before man's eyes, hoping and deluding themselves that maybe God himself wouldn't notice. So whitewashed tombs, Christ says it himself, correct? There's nothing living in there. Now Christ goes even further and he says, nor shall you make an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Man, what an interesting he goes to your, your, your head. What is an oath done by? An oath is done almost always by something that is greater than yourself, right? So by, that is why we swear to God because you can't trust me, you have to swear to God. But God is even saying, hey, if you're still trying to skirt the issue and you're saying, hey, I swear by my own head, right? My own life, my own head. Um, it's a less believable oath. But even in that oath, He's saying, you can't even make one hair white or black. He said, you are mine. I'm still in control. The heaven is mine. The earth is mine. The, the, the city is mine and you are mine. Everything on this earth is mine. It is, a, it is a statement of arrogance when we make oaths. And we've read this recently actually in James 4, if you guys remember where we said, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We make these oaths thinking that we're gonna be able to fulfill them, not realizing that we are speaking in arrogance and it is sinful to think. And that's to think that we can fulfill these vows and not be under the judgment of God every day that we have taken this oath. So even a vow vow by your own head has no place in Christian life. We are completely at the mercy of God. And how weak are we that we are unable to make even the smallest changes in our own nature, that God is necessary to change us in every way. Just remember that we are a vapor and a mist. And I think that will, will keep us hopefully from taking these oaths that are not wise to take. Now, after, after he speaks about um, uh, not taking an oath on your own head, he goes to letting your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil. Interesting. Let, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Now, question while you've been reading this, if you if you if you've, been, if you've been following along, you, you realize that, hey, Christ is, Christ is saying there's no place for oaths. And not only that is there no place for oaths, but at the end he says it's evil 
But we know that God throughout scripture not only commands us to have oaths, which we touched on, but gives oaths. And not only does he give oaths, but we see that Paul himself says that he swears, or not that he swears, but that he uses God as witness for certain things that he is going to say. So if God takes oaths, is that evil? If Paul takes, uh, makes oaths, is that evil? Well, as Zoeana actually mentioned during worship, God is unchanging. He is perfectly reliable. He does not break any vow, but fulfills all of his promises. The reason God gives men vows is because we are liars and he is merciful and gracious, knowing that we struggle to believe the simple word. When someone says, hey, I'll do this. For some reason, it feels better if he says, I swear to God, I'll get it done. Instantly, you're like, yeah, all right, he'll get it done. And this is why God gives his oath. And he cannot swear by anything greater, but rather he swears by himself. And this does not mean that he becomes more voracious or, or more truthful or uh, it, not the case. He's just increasing our faith through this gracious act. So God is doing this because he is merciful towards us when we see that. But really, how can oaths be evil and not at the same time? Because they're still being made, right? And as we talked about, Paul does make some in the New Testament. Well, there is, we see here that there is sort of an issue with us and we understand that we are liars. So that means the reason we cannot make these oaths is because we are prone to lie and to break them, right? But there is a, there is a way to harmonize these things. Some people decide this, hey, and this is what I believe the Anabaptists did, which said, no oaths ever for any reason. That means when you go to court and they want to swear you in, you say, no, thank you. I will simply say, my yes is yes, my no is no, right? You can do that. Um, There are, I mean, but there are other circumstances where legally you have to sign your name for these oaths, where oaths are necessary in in getting things done, right? how, how do we get around that? Well, you, you, scripture harmonizes itself. And we see that in situations where your moral character and your relationship with God cannot be verified, an oath is allowed, right? If you're trying to tell someone that you have no idea about or someone that, someone that is, let's say you're trying to get, let's go back to the mortgage idea. Not a great idea, but they require you to sign this paper saying you will pay it back. Why can't you just tell them, my word's my word. I'll pay you back. I promise. They don't know who you are. They can't trust who you are, right? So there is this, this, this place for it. Now, our job is to try to get rid of that, that, uh, that oath as quickly as we can and not, not sit in it too long. Uh, but in other situations, the private situations in our life, that means between me and you, between you and your sister, between your parents and yourself, between brothers and sisters in Christ, and also in the new kingdom that we are now part of, from our, in our relationship to, uh, uh, to God himself, there is the standard that there are to be no oaths, that our lives are to be holy, that our words are to be sacred. And that when we say yes, if they need another yes, we can give it. Yes, yes, right? But our yes is as good as an oath. There is no difference. So there's this distinction. Uh, there are two different forms of thought. One that says, hey, 
no oath altogether. And the other one that tries to harmonize these ideas uh, and allow one to, to, uh, to be able to um, ha take certain oaths in situations where you cannot be um, verified to be of good moral standing. Um, but in, in all private relationships, we must not take oaths. So Christ is repeating over and over what he, has what he will repeat further on in the same book of Matthew. If you guys, and I know all of us know this passage, right? That we must be brutal with our members and that we must cut off the member that puts us in danger of sinning. Just as with divorce, he clarifies that there's almost no justifiable reason for divorce. He takes us all the way back to the pure heart of God. That there, stop trying to skirt the issue. Stop trying to shimmy around the law, right? And he says in Matthew 18, verse eight, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame and maimed. He's telling us to pluck out our eyes, right? He's being brutal with the sin in our lives. And that is what he's doing here. He's being consistent. Now, Christ is always taking us back and he has been taking us back to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is this. That Christ is calling us here to treat our words, as we've said already, to be sacred, to bridle our tongues and to treat every word as though it is sworn to God because as disciples of Christ, we are wholly his. Our words are to be measured. They are to be intentional. They are to be careful because they reflect on who? On Christ, on our savior, Jesus Christ. We are called to give our voice to the proclamation of the gospel, to the proclamation that our king has come, that he will come again, and to proclaim that a new kingdom has arrived. Therefore, we must strive to speak in a way worthy of the message that we proclaim. So that is what Christ is saying here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That is enough. A follower of Christ must live this way. A person whose yes is yes and whose no is no is a person that is a reflection of his creator. He is reliable. He is trustworthy because without those characteristics, no one will trust your yes or yes, right? Reliability is paramount. And anything beyond that of a yes or a yes is evil. So just remember, that every word we speak must reflect on the one that has redeemed us. That our words are not to be casual, common, or profane. But the words that we speak are to reflect our Lord Jesus Christ and the covenant that we are under. They are to be sacred and uh, proper. Our words are to be sacred. Remember that. Our words are to be sacred. Now, I, I do have something that we should apply into our lives. And I think it's, it's fairly heartbreaking because we may, we may find this is the case for many of us. As Christians, I believe we should ask ourselves, have your friends, family, children, coworkers, or any in your, anyone in your life ask you to promise them after you said something? Have they said, once you've said, hey, I'll do this, and they say, promise me. 
If, if you've heard that said, that should be a sign. That at one point, there was, <laughs> your, your actions, your words were not completely truthful, possibly. And that we need to repent. So ask yourself this. Try to remember. Try to remember, if, try to remember if you have yet to fulfill a vow that you have made. If there are vows and oaths that you have, you have pushed under the rug and you thought God has forgotten, fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, the, the truth is, this, the statements of Christ throughout the Sermon on the Mart are heartbreaking and they are burdensome. Um, and the language that he is using here is intentional. He is not, he is, if you feel this broken heartedness, uh, I want to tell you that, uh, good, you should feel broken hearted. It is not a bad place to be. I would like to encourage you through the rest of this series that as God is breaking our hearts, that we do not harden our hearts because this is what he is doing here. But that we allow the Holy Spirit to break it even more. And in that brokenness to run to God. As David wrote in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So that same God that is convicting you of your sin today preached the same message 2,000 years ago. And he is the same God who offers redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, and eternal life today. So if you have not run to him, run to him. And for those that have already run to him and claim him as our Lord and Savior and have been claimed by him, let us continue to do one thing, and that is to pursue the high call of knowing Jesus Christ and proclaiming his kingdom. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.